1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of New Books Network, in which we talk to previous winners of the Coleman Prize. Naming the honor of British business historian Nolan Donald, Donald Coleman, who was born in 1920 and died in 1995, this prize is awarded annually by the Association of Business Historians to recognize excellence in new research in Britain. It is open to PhD dissertation in business history, or broadly defined, after having or having either a British subject or completed a British British university. <clears throat> All dissertations completed in the previous year of that prize are eligible. Today we have Joseph Blade, who is the recipient of the Coleman Prize in 2019, with his dissertation entitled Networks Innovation and Knowledge: The North Stratfordshire Potteries. 1750, 1851, awarded by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Joe, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Joe Lane is a business historian and a lecturer in strategy at Henley Business School at the University of Reading. As I said, he holds a PhD in economic history from the London School of Economics, where he subsequently worked before joining Henley in 2019. He is currently co-director of the Center for Economic Institutions and International Business History at the University of Reading and has currently two streams of research, one on patents and innovation over the long run and a second concerning how industrial clusters are sites of knowledge and creation and dissemination. Joe, you've published most of your dissertation as journal articles and a book chapter. I will add the details of these publications to the show notes. If uh, and links, if uh, people want to um, follow them. But uh, first, uh, tell us a little bit more about your background, how you became an academic, and how you became interested in this topic.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm one of those people who they will say they were always interested in history, and I think well, history is fascinating. So why why shouldn't you be interested in it? But I think I spent most of my time at school and 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 college, so kind of high school not really realizing that this was something you could do as a, as a job. So I was very interested in history, but I didn't realize really that it could be your profession beyond teaching history, uh, in school. So they're kind of actually researching history. Um, and I, and I came into kind of university education, uh, through a history undergraduate, a bachelor of arts at, at Nottingham Trent university, but I'd worked for a couple of years after my A-levels, um, and, and I got rather abysmal in my A-levels. So university wasn't an option for me when I, when I left education. Um, but I realized that it was something later, uh, say my early twenties that I, that I wanted to be doing. And so I booked a load of, um, open day trips to universities to try and figure out what it was that I might want to do. And I remember the exact moment that I thought I want to be a historian and it was at Nottingham Trent and it was the program director, uh, for history. Uh, a man called Dr. Kevin Gould, um, and he gave this kind of hugely inspirational presentation about what it means to study history, what it means to kind of study history at, at Nottingham Trent University, but also what it means to be a historian. Because I think I, I remember sitting on the back row with my dad came with me um, at the time and I just turned around and said, well, we don't need to go anywhere else because this is this is what I want to do. And so I think there was that moment was the the kind of why I thought Academia is something that I'd like to do, and that history undergraduate was so broad that I realised history is is something that you can be interested in forever. Um, and you can, if you can work in that industry, then that it kind of sounded quite appealing to me. So I thought, right, knuckle down, hard work, um, get going. And there was one module in particular that touched on the history of technology, and it was it was steam engines, it was nineteenth century early. 19th century industrial revolution it was you know kind of um very much this kind of not economic history but very much the social history of, of how britain and then later the world changed with industrialization and i thought wow this is something that's still going on this is something that's really interesting and from that that led me to to pursue a master's degree i ended up actually a slight tangent writing my undergraduate thesis on first crusade and on um a comparison of the first crusade and, and trench warfare in the first world war. So it shows you how broad kind of history can be, but finding my way into technology, into the knowledge and skills that lie behind that is something that I then really developed at, at the London school of economics where I did a, a master's in global history. So one year masters there taught masters, and that is where, um, the kind of humble name drop of working with, so Steve Walbury was my, my master's supervisor for my thesis and i remember going to him and saying i've got an idea i'm interested in technology and how organizations and companies use it um and i want to do a comparative study and he said well if you're interested in that you need to find an industry so i found pottery industry as as the kind of topic that i have researched now for uh, for several years after my phd as well and it just became this world that i learned more and more about through the through the kind of master's thesis so much so that i've said Well, actually, you know, doing a PhD in this would, would bring me even closer to some of the answers that are, that are out there. Um, and then kind of those four years doing the PhD at LSE is, I guess, the, how I became the academic rather than the why. And it was that really rich environment of very high level discussion that you are embedded in, um, and that you become part of when you start presenting. And that's the real thrill, I think, to become part of that community, so. Once I started the PhD, um, it was with Mary Morgan and and Gerben Backer. Um And once I started, I realised that they kind of there were just endless questions, and and I could see that people were saying to me, you know, you will you'll carry these questions around with you for a long time after. And I'm still thinking about the original questions I started asking in my thesis now. So you know, and this is you know, five six years after after finishing. Um, so hopefully, I've got a Few more legs in there, but that's kind of how I became an academic. Is through being a historian first and being fascinated with history, and then thinking, "Well, this is something you can do uh, as a as a profession." And of course, in,
1: in in that comment is the fact that there are not that many academic jobs for historians for a number of reasons. But let me ask something for the benefit of our listeners, which is the significance of the pottery industry in the industrial revolution and rather than, you know, rather than just looking at what your your exact project, which is kind of going down into the industry, let's have a a small reflection of why this industry, it's so, I mean, it's so important to understand the industrial revolution in Britain. And I don't know if I'm overstepping or in, in the sense of making it too broad, but why it helps to understand a very deep question, which is why the industrial revolution happened in Britain at the time that it happened.
0: Yeah, I I think that is a very deep question and it's one that uh, the last 10, 15 years in particular, there's been a lot of sustained work on that. So I think I was approaching the pottery industry at a time when these discussions, um, you know, what started the industrial revolution, what drove it, what drove the ideas and the technical change, and for me, pottery I I don't think we can understand the industrial revolution the first industrial revolution without understanding a broad range of industries. So if you think we have the the poster industries, you know, cotton textiles for instance and industrialization and and mass production um but what we have is in pottery we have this almost alternate story which is an industry that that resists or um is not taken over by mechanization proper until long after the industrial revolution, and yet still manages to achieve a lot of the benchmarks of becoming a global industry. So pottery that is developed in North Staffordshire, a five by six mile area, very small, highly concentrated, is working its way across the globe. It's competing with uh, the finest porcelain and, and earthenware from Europe and from, and from China in particular. And it's working its way into not only the higher end um, market, but it's working its way into the into the everyday kind of commodity market as well. And that, for me, without the impact of, you know, a uh, kind of uh, legacy of, of, of industrialization and mechanization, I'd still call it a craft-based industry. So for me, that was the real interest and why we need to understand pottery in particular, because it still has to be... Um, understood in terms of what skills are developed. How do people pass that skill on to the next generation? How do we get the accumulation of all the knowledge? That means that in the early 19th century, long after, uh, people like Josiah Wedgwood, the first Josiah Spode, the very famous industrial potters, uh, have been and gone. You've still got around 80, 80% of the national industry located in the area that they inhabited, you know, 30, 40 years previously. So I think it's a story of persistence and it's a story that it casts a different light on the first industrial revolution, which is, it's not all about cotton textiles. And if we really want to understand the processes that one drive innovation and the two turn that innovation into something that is sustained, then looking at a long lasting industry that is highly clustered, but is also competing globally. That for me was the interesting part, and that I think is why the pottery industry in particular remains so fascinating because we haven't studied it as much as cotton textiles, for instance, or metalworking, for instance.
1: Great, thanks for that reflection. Let me um, before we we move on. Let me take a, another side um, discussion or sidetrack and talk about the Coleman Prize specifically and what it meant for you personally and professionally and if you still recall you know what it meant to be in the competition and presenting those those um early days the the Coleman prize was something i was aware of as a phd
0: student um and it was always in the back of my mind as something that was a marker of success or a marker of validation by uh, a professional body of peers um this isn't you know, your, your closest friends patting you on the back. This is people who are scrutinizing your work and celebrating uh, the, the the success of your work. So for me, it was hugely important personally and professionally. Personally, I've made many connections, um, you know, in, in terms of working with people who I met through the Coleman Prize and co-authoring uh, papers and, and the like, but also professionally. When I gave the presentation at the ABH conference in 2019... I was four days into my new job at Henley Business School, and in the audience when I looked out, were people that I recognized, people like Michael, Michael Aldis, um, people like uh, Chris Corker, um, people that I knew as my peers or my, my kind of general cohort within three or four years of my PhD cohort. And then a few rows in was my head of department, my new head of department. So there was a doubly kind of weighty moment. And for me to get the chance to signpost and say, even being considered for the Coleman Prize says, people think your work is worth something and is worth recognition beyond, you know, the huge thing that is achieving your PhD. So the Coleman Prize, actually, it it started a few kind of very long lasting so far uh, relationships, both in terms of colleagues, people who I'd never met before, but I would have read their work. And, you know, talking to them in the queue, at the conference and say oh you're Joe. oh yeah okay yeah we, we heard about your work really looking forward to your presentation in a world such as ours where we network a lot i think it really helped to get my name a little bit further up the mind of some of the people that i'd that i'd kind of eyeballed in the queue and said yes you know who i am now." so it's hugely important for me um it's you know i have the certificate on my uh on my shelf in my office at work and it's something that i with value for a long time because I can see the value it's offered as well to people who got it before me and after. And um,
1: what was your experience of organizing the competition the following year?
0: That was great. It was a, as a very junior academic and, a, and a, an early career researcher, it was great to be involved in discussions that aren't necessarily just about your own work or your own area of expertise. So sitting on the panel. Uh, for the the following year's Coleman Prize, it taught me about how to how to be an academic in terms of how to read other people's work and how to consider what does good quality look like, even if it's not something that you are familiar with. So reading different topics, reading different pieces of work and and looking for those signs and markers, you know, appreciation of different data sources and methods and all sorts of things. It was really important that at that early stage, people welcome you back and say, this isn't just a, you got the prize, well done, it's, you got the prize, we'd like you to be involved in how the prize is administered in the next year's conference. And, you know, again, as an early career researcher, that's a, a good pat on the back and it's an open arms welcome to say, you know, the society is very friendly and open, come and come and be part of it.
1: Indeed, it's a very friendly society as yes, we are. Having this very warm chat today, uh, let's get back to your to your work. And um, what was your thinking in producing, a, you know, two three um, articles plus a book chapter rather than going for uh, a, a book and maybe an article later on?
0: So there was certainly um, an, an element of um pragmatism and 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 it was a practical decision to think what do I um what do I need to get onto the job market and you mentioned earlier that there were very you know we, we have this this situation where there are you know, jobs like mine and lectureships are very hard to come by. Um, so I'm very fortunate there but but thinking what can I take around with me uh as soon as possible? And so the way I formulated it in my head when I was writing it was a a narrative, a a thesis, a monograph, um, essentially. But then one thing that kind of I started doing was seeing the chapters as individual kind of papers within themselves. So for me, it was quite important that once I'd done that with one of them, which was I don't know, I guess it's a little bit like the kind of economics job market paper. It was it was my my shining glory that I could say, well, I've published a paper. For my thesis, this is uh, kind of bona fide. Um, I then saw how I could do that with other with other chapters. And for me, the, one the thought of writing a book, I have ideas. You know, for longer term um, kind of uh, books that I'd like to write, but off the back of the thesis, the way I have three three strands, so they're quite disparate in a way, and they seem to make sense individually, but then also as this as this broader narrative. So having three separate papers, it just made sense once I looked at actually what's the empirical contribution that I'm making. I had different empirical contributions to make so I could pull them out quite, not quite easily. It's a laborious process, but um, quite logically, I guess. So my decision started off as a practical one and then it it took on from there. Um, and I think my my style of writing, having written a huge thesis, I wanted to write something short and get something out. Um, and, and so I quite like writing shorter pieces.
1: And you ex- explained to us how you, you, you came to the topic and how the importance of the industry, there, there is some work on, on the potteries among other people, um, former Coleman prize winner Andy pop and current editor of enterprise and society, uh. So how did the idea of, of, or the main idea, the main research hypothesis came down and that in my mind usually comes hand in hand, finding the evidence in, in which you want to work with, because, uh, at least in this line of work and certainly economic, to some extent in economics as well, you might have an idea, but if the data is not there, then um, you know, it, it just stays as a nice idea.
0: The idea started first, which was how to understand an industry over its kind of formative years the years, whereby it became known as the seat of pottery production in, in Northwestern Europe. And then, and then it kind of got a, a global reputation. And I was aware that lots of work had been done reconstructing the economic history of exports imports the number of pieces produced etc at a very granular level by people like lorna wetherham up to the the kind of first decade of the of the uh, 19th century and then from a business history perspective people like andrew pop had covered from 1850 um onwards and looked at the industry and the cluster and the sense of identity and all sorts of kind of really juicy topics there and so i was grappling with this hundred year period and thinking How do I understand this fundamentally? Do I view this as a cluster, an industrial district? And do I approach it as such and look for key firms or do I see this as a group of individuals who start to build the industry, start to build the reputation and are the key drivers, the movers and the shakers. And so I was drawn more to the latter of those two. So the individuals themselves, mainly because I I took a perspective that we know a lot about people like Josiah Wedgwood, Josiah Spode, um, the Wood family from Burslem. We know lots about famous potters, but we don't know as much about the the, the kind of unsung uh, masses of potters that filled uh, the the North Staffordshire Potteries district over this kind of hundred-year period. And so, I I really wanted to understand how they developed and how they innovated and drove the the industry and how they organize themselves and how they organize production outside of a very traditional, um, kind of guild system, for instance. So pottery doesn't have a guild. So I couldn't go to the guild and look at, um, and look at their records. I had to get a bit creative. So I thought, well, to understand the industry, I need to be able to rebuild it. So I started at the bottom and this is where your point about data and sources comes in is I had to think, how can I triangulate different sources and evidence? To build a picture of what it looks like for the rank and file potters not the very large kind of whales but the, the minnows i guess to, to carry that analogy forward and so i looked at things like trade directories um the kind of uh, 18th and 19th century telephone books of the of the industrial revolution and i triangulated that with notifications in the london gazette for instance of bankruptcy or of the dissolution of partnerships to try and essentially build a picture of who was operating in this industry when? How did they organize themselves as a company? Are they a family company? Are they in partnership with other named partners? And how does that sit alongside the kind of economic development of the industry? So in, in a sense, the questions I had first then led me into, right, what sources do I need to be able to answer these and so I spent a long time looking at these sources and trying to figure out how robust they were, what I could do, how I could develop them further. Um, that was really quite time consuming, but I think ultimately allowed me then to answer lots of other questions because I had a, you know, a, a database of 1500 potters that I could look at and analyze in lots of different ways in different chapters. So it was that groundwork that then enabled me to ask other questions.
1: And I don't know if this is an unfair question. It's certainly a question that I put forward when I had the benefit of of having some lectures from Giacomo Becatini, who was one of the uh contributors to this to this injury long, long time ago and I played with the with the idea of industrial districts. So that's the name dropping for you. But one one thing that That at least in my case stopped me from going down the route of the um, industrial district analysis, and uh, uh, that also comes out in the history of technology. Is the the question is how do you know that the potteries are going to be successful and are going to become an industrial district? And this is related to the history of technology in the sense that you cannot. You, you have the benefit of hindsight, so you know which technologies are adopted widely and are successful and, and, and there is a lot of attention on, on those. And, um, you know, well, that's a different strand of research. What, what happens to the industries that don't, don't happen? But, you know, Beccatini's answer at, at, at that point was really a non-answer because he said, well, from from little acorns, oaks grow. And I said, but but which acorn? You know, you don't know which acorn is going to want the the one that is going to give you the the oak. So uh, that's why I'm saying that it may be an unfair question because you're dealing with an industry as in your own words that you had already a hundred years worth of analysis there. You know that it's important. You know that it's key for the for the industrial revolution. In your own words, you've you've said, well, you know, it has these features with which are put it as as key in the industrial revolution as globalization, competition, but not others like mechanization. So coming back to the original question, how would you know that the industrial that 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 the potteries is going to become an industrial district that is going to be successful if you're looking at it from the past into the future?
0: That is a it's a very tricky question. <laughs> I'm so I, I don't I don't think there's a way in which you can concretely answer that, but I think there's a way in which you can consider signposts or markers that might be important. And these are particularly relevant for pottery. So they might not be generalizable across other industrial districts. But for pottery production, rather than you know, broader technology or technical uh, innovation, there's a lot of knowledge-based innovation and a lot of tacit knowledge and experiential knowledge development and i think if you were to position yourself in the second half of the 18th century you would see that the knowledge and the the kind of uh the groundbreaking innovations are all happening in one area and it's around as a handful of individuals who are driving some of this change they happen to be in that area because of uh, a variety of factors so um, it could be your first and second nature geography factors. So you've got the raw materials, you've got the access to the clay. But later on, the industry develops, and it isn't necessarily Staffordshire clay that's important. They're reaching out to North American plays, for instance. Um, so I think really you understand this, or I understand pottery as as an industrial district and cluster which is ruled by knowledge, and which is it. And this is why I think it becomes the individuals that that becomes so important, because if you look at what knowledge is contained within that small area in 1770 or 1790 or 1820, it is becoming more and more concentrated. So I think, yes, as historians, we have hindsight, but there could be other sites that could have been the the North Staffordshire Potteries. So London in the 18th century had quite a number of Ceramic, you know, Chelsea Bow, porcelain factories, for instance. Um, But what they didn't have was that clustering and all of the kind of, to go back to the the industrial districts uh, terminology, is these kind of externalities, the Marshallian externalities. And so I thought, right, here it's the specialized pool of labor. It's the knowledge being in the air. Um, It's the way in which all of these interactions take place. And and I think that's unique in North Staffordshire, because if you have potteries in Yorkshire, you have potteries in London, they don't have that critical mass. They don't have the individuals, the movers and the shakers. Um, So you might think, oh, it's odd that someone who says they're a business historian is so interested in just the individuals. But it's those individuals that then form those organisations, that form the companies, and that the partnerships and get access to knowledge and develop new knowledge and it's all coming out of north staffordshire so i think at various times you will see signposts of future potential growth of course it's the the, the difficult task is how do we avoid presentism or how do we avoid this kind of avoiding hindsight too much um but it's it's it's
1: the the trick of the historian i guess isn't it the challenge of the historian indeed so what would have been the following from this line of thought what would have been the critical or crucial developments that are happening around Staffordshire to create this critical mass and to take off in a way that potteries in london didn't
0: so you you have you have several key individuals um who are all born around the same time around the middle of the kind of uh, 18th century, so kind of two decades inside of, of, of 1750. Um, and, there, you know, many of them are apprenticed to the same to the same potters. Many of them are um, trying to solve some of the key problems of the time. And one of them is around hard and soft paste porcelain. So it's to try and um, develop an English porcelain. And so you see in lots of different um, kind of, uh, in lots of documents, in court cases, in uh, patent records for instance attempts to try and make this English porcelain and it's in Staffordshire where um some of these these developments are taking place but then you have people like um Josiah Wedgwood who are developing not only um uh, organizational Innovation so he's very well known for how he organized production and bringing in one of the first steam engines so that the Watton Bolton steam engine um but actually, what they're doing is they're considering meeting demand and meeting taste, and and really driving fashion forward in terms of the pottery industry. So they're revolutionising how the industry responds to changes in taste in London, for instance. Um, but what they're what they're doing that's fundamental is building bodies, glazes, and very functional features of pottery. That you know, for instance, to take one invention from uh, Josiah Wedgwood is to take his bodies that don't taint and they don't take on the colour of whatever liquid is put inside them or they don't crack or praise over time. So you get something that is very functional then and very long-lasting and durable as well as being very beautiful and ornamental. So what Staffordshire starts to do is it splits itself up into ornamental wear and this kind of functional domestic wear. And this is where then you start to see that the trickle-down, the high-end innovation of making statuary, making these wonderful uh, dinner services for the empresses and and, and empresses of various parts of the world. But then you also get this kind of innovation in how to churn out hundreds of thousands of pieces while still maintaining craft production. Machinery doesn't work for pottery. It doesn't produce high-quality wares. But if you have enough skilled labor, you can... You can get around that problem in, in in different ways, so I think that's what it is. It's it's that development of and the the kind of culture of innovation within that cluster that just keeps driving forward. Um, and and then as the industry develops, it becomes a little bit more technical and much more mechanical in the second half of the 19th century, so the 1870s and 80s, um, which is where I wrote my master's thesis. I wrote my master's thesis uh, a comparative study of the implementation of machines to make bowls and plates. And the bottleneck was that, uh, they just kept cracking because they weren't made by human hands. So it's very difficult to make a profiling tool that works automatically, that produces the
1: quality. So it just didn't work. So they relied for a century on hands. And of course there were other innovations famously like exchanging the, the, the person that would judge when the the pottery was ready when it was cooked, for devices that would replace that type of of work. Uh, You've mentioned patents a couple of times, at least. How important were these for the potteries? And again, a broader question, is this something that was unique to Anglo-Saxon capitalism, or... Is it essential for for the story of capitalism to to have a, the the institution of patents and and protecting that Schumpeterian uh, monopoly um, rents of, out of innovation? So I have two
0: parts to the answer to that, and, and I'll I'll deal with the second one first, which is around the importance of patents more more broadly. And this is something that when I started looking into innovation in the pottery industry, I started thinking, where do I look first for signs of innovation? Okay, things we can count, things we can measure. So look at patents, um, and and I I think the development of the patent system in 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 uh, Great Britain um, over the kind of eighteenth, nineteenth, and into the twentieth century is something that I'm working on on a on a separate project with um, Stephen Billington and, and Alan Hanna, and and this is really saying what does in innov- what does the patent system do to innovation? Does it make it? Does it make it? higher quality innovation does it direct innovation into certain areas where it is needed does it help appropriate the returns from innovation um and what we start to see is a very um kind of it depends it depends where you look and what industries you look at um in in general i would say that patents are a very important source of supporting inventors and innovators um but i would take the Moserian, I guess the Moser view, Petra Moser's view, that it, it really depends on the type of knowledge that underpins the innovation. And I think that really is where the interaction between innovation and patents starts to become very complex, because patents are very good at protecting some things and not others. So this is one thing that then leads me to the answering the first part of your question, which is, are patents important for the pottery industry? Potters didn't patent. So, so then to answer the, the kind of first part of your question around, you know, were, were patents important for, for potters? The answer is is mixed. Potters, at least in the period I looked at, so from around 1780 to about 1850, they didn't patent. Um, they didn't patent much at all. <laughs> um, and one thing that I argue is that this is because of the type of knowledge that is useful in that industry the type of knowledge that is useful and will generate competitive advantage if you're an organization or a firm. Um, And so what, what that led me to think is, well, if the patents aren't important for potters, how else are they looking to either protect their ideas, protect that precious knowledge? And so then it opens up the entire world of innovation outside of the patent system. So it makes you think, well, yes, patenting is very important for innovation, but it's not the whole story. And you think the classic schmuckler line is uh, not every innovation is patented and not every patent is an innovation. So um, it made me think, well, what counts as innovation in the pottery industry and how did people protect it? Um, There were, of course, a handful of patents. Um, There were some, you know, Josiah Wedgwood um, famously said, I have no truck with patents because he had to go to court to try and protect it through litigation. It was very costly. So he protected his ideas in different ways. Um, you know if you read travelers uh, Diaries from the 18th and early 19th century you see them really struggling to get access into factories or well, they're they're allowed access to same parts of the factory but not others the division of labor prevents any one person knowing how to kind of put together all the parts of the production process and so that led me to my uh, a, a chapter which then became a, a paper called secrets for sale which was going down the rabbit hole of if patents aren't important, how are people protecting their inventions in a highly innovative industry? There's lots of invention going on, as as, as we know. So if you start reading things like Mechanics Magazine, or you start reading some of the local newspapers uh, from the 80th and, and, and mid- kind of middle of the first half of the, of the 19th century, you start to see a really interesting uh, pattern emerge. And there was one particular advertisement that caught my eye And it was an advertisement for a company uh, factory for sale. It's not anything particularly untoward. It's not anything that's unusual. But the final line of the advert said that the secrets of the knowledge contained within would also be revealed for a fee. So you could buy or you could let the factory, but also you could buy the knowledge that came with it. And that, for me, indicated this kind of secondary market for knowledge, if you like, which is we're not going to patent it because if we patent it, we have to write down the recipe. We have to say what goes into it. We have to reveal too much information, but actually if we keep it secret, you can get access to it in other ways. And there was a whole scandal, um, of a, uh, I presume they are a disgruntled employee of one of the potters who wrote, uh, in as Friar bacon of Halton Abbey. And he wrote into the, um, mechanics magazine offering recipes. And they published lists of recipes and annotated them uh, in terms of how many parts of this and how many parts of that. So there's this real knowledge base there, but unless you start looking in different places, you just don't find it. So for me, that patent system analogy is it's great if you're working in an industry that uses patents, um, but until you understand whether your industry uses patents and that propensity to patent, to go back to Petronosa, I think you get a very different picture. So potters don't patent. does that mean they're not inventive? No, it means they're incredibly inventive, but they're protecting it in other ways. And that's again, where you get to the people, the dialogue, the cluster, because this knowledge is, is bleeding out everywhere across the cluster.
1: What would have been the recommendations or when you're asked sitting in a business school, this is interesting and fascinating, but what is your recommendation for business people today? of, of learning more about these things.
0: Again, a a good question. And one that I think since moving to Henley Business School has become more acute for me, so every week when I sit in our departmental seminars and some of my colleagues are business historians, some of them are not, um, and seeing their kind of policy implications or the real world contemporary implications of research that's being done as a historian, we think, how do we, how do we make this relevant, um. And yeah, I presented my work in the department and it's trying to think rather than, um, it's acknowledging the limitations of history, but also in highlighting what, what we can know. So to answer your question, I view this as, as knowledge management strategies in particular. So the point I was, I was referring to earlier around how do you create and, and manage the knowledge We think of you know contemporary business history business theory sorry or 20th and 21st century business theory that's trying to understand how do firms create knowledge how do firms manage knowledge well i can say well look these are concerns that have been going on for for centuries and in this type of context where there isn't an institution to govern it or where there isn't um, the use of a patent system this is some of the ways in which organizations and individuals chose to behave and how they navigated through the challenges of how much do we disclose versus how much do we protect so these very contemporary questions are not so contemporary when you consider the past um i work at an international business and strategy department so i sit um as a lecturer in strategy and for me this is this is about the kind of knowledge-based view of the firm um if it's in the cluster i i borrow ideas from Economic geographies, and it's the knowledge-based view of clusters, and it's this knowledge as being the fundamental component and building block of competitive advantage. And and my colleagues and people that I that I uh, speak with um, in other business schools, you know, as a business historian, when you present these ideas, they're interested because there's a similarity in the theme rather than necessarily the empirics. Um, and and of course, the historical method and the data approach and the archives is also interesting. But I think that's really where it lies is for me, it's, it's strategy.
1: And since you've mentioned it, what sort of, um, distinctive, innovative or borrowed methodologies did you use in your, in your work to, to bring this data to the end, to this story?
0: So I borrowed several, actually, um, I, 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 I borrowed some economic sociology. And I borrowed from economic geography. Um from economic sociology, I was very much interested in how people interact and engage and and, and networks. So I looked into network theory and I read Granovetter. I read people like Ronald Burt, I read all sorts of different approaches. I read Emily Buckner's work, for instance, as well, that uses uh kind of social network analysis and theory there. Um so I I really borrowed those ideas and thought. Are networks a way in which I can understand the behavior of what I observe in terms of how people are forming partnerships or how people are utilizing individual connections as a way of getting access to new knowledge created outside of the cluster. All of this is, is that kind of network theory. Um, and so I, I lent heavily on that and I still think it's extremely important. Um, so that really formed one of the key chapters of my thesis. Another key chapter borrowed from economic geography. And this is where I was thinking about defining the industrial district and defining, you know, how do we, you know, am am I sticking with this kind of Marshallian idea or the kind of Neo-Marshallian, the Italian model, the canonical model, how am I going to actually kind of conceptualize what it is that I'm seeing? Um, And so I looked at, at, at a lot of contemporary studies on clusters and industrial districts, and I kind of arrived at this idea that we have an early industrial district it exhibits some of the features and, and and not others but that economic geography approach was really interesting because it meant that i tried things like mapping out the industry and you know it, it, there's a, a there's a rudimentary uh, map of the of the cluster in my um in my thesis and this is me borrowing the ideas but not necessarily having the techniques yet to be able to fulfill it, but is this idea that if we can physically see what the cluster looked like at a certain point in time, we can understand spatial proximity matters, buzz, face to face contact, all of these terms that come from economic geographers, you know, Storper, Venables, and the like, that we say, ah, okay, it's not necessarily exactly what we see, but it's a lens. So I used economic sociology, economic geography, um, and then I guess the good old histor- historical kind of method of. Digging into sources and seeing, you know, following up leads, reading lots and lots of letters um, uh, between different potters, uh, and trying to trying to triangulate sources.
1: There, smashing. And where are you? As a as a final question, um, where are you heading now? Where are you working on these days, and what are your your short term and medium term objectives? So short term, um, I
0: just uh, got awarded a British Academy Leverhulme Small Research Grant. Um, which is great because uh, I know they're very hard to come by. So that's a nice uh, kind of uh, project for the next year and year or two, which is looking at uh, failure to innovate or failure to commercialize innovation, should I say? So this is I'm sort of working on this with Stephen Billington at Oxford University, and this is using patents and patentees and lists of inventors and trying to match them with debtors' prison records and uh, notifications of bankruptcy. To see um, if there are any characteristics of, of failed inventors that we can add to our pantheon of, of famous inventors who made made lots of money. So that's one thing: is that kind of darker side of, of innovation studies to see what happens when things go wrong. Um, and that's from the 18th and 19th century. And then my second kind of uh, stream is around uh, industrial clusters, much more from a much more theoretical perspective. And this is something that. Um, So in 2021, we published a book, uh, an edited collection with John Wilson and Chris Corker. And we got a a great group of economic and business historians together looking at different clusters in Great Britain. And so what we're trying to do um, is consider where do we go next in in historical cluster studies? So Andrew Pop, John Wilson, edited a very good volume um, well over 10 years ago now. Um, And we're trying to consider that was... It was instrumental in driving forward my own research. So we think, where do we go next? What kind of unit of analysis is the best to consider for industrial clusters? Um, How do we consider cluster failure? How do we consider historical clusters versus global clusters and pipelines today? So we're really trying to come up with new ways of conceptualizing clusters. Um, And so it involves a move away from pottery. It involves a move away from purely... Um, the thesis focus and the empirical contribution there. Pottery will always have kind of place in my heart. I think I've published most of what I can at the moment for my thesis, but you know, there's always you know that kind of dense knowledge that you acquire through a thesis. That there will be something there that I might pull on. Um, but at the moment, it's patents and, and on the one hand and, and clusters on the other.
1: If it's of any um, help. I've been publishing on banks and retail banks for longer than I thought I was going to be doing it and still working on that. But, Joe Lane, thank you very much for being with us. Coleman Prize winner in 2019, Networks of Innovation and Knowledge, the North Stratford Fire Potteries, 1750, 1851. These will be available in the show notes. If you're a um, the first time that you listen to us, please subscribe to our podcast. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. And do rank us, do make comments. Those are very helpful for us. This was Bernardo Lazo for New Books Network. Until next time.